Welcome to Season 7 of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian and a writer, and I've worked in the animal healthcare industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. Speaking of directions, in each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a guest so they can share their different directions and journeys. We'll explore veterinary medicine and how it fits with other aspects of our lives. One last thing. Thank you, Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the veterinary profession. Today, I get a chance to chat with Dr. Valerie Marcano, a boarded poultry veterinarian who is the owner of Valkyrie Consulting, a firm that offers consultations in poultry health and diversity and belonging. Now that's for humans, not chickens. She is also the co-founder and chief executive officer of Possibilities Vet Med, a nonprofit that aims to increase the recruitment and retention of individuals from underrepresented and marginalized communities to the veterinary profession. Glad to have you here, Valerie. And thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, congratulations on launching your new consulting firm this year. Why did you feel the time was right in your life to start the business now? Oh, a combination of things. I, with the, with the nonprofit, it seemed like life was taking me in a lot of different directions and it just felt like I'm, I'm so passionate about different things, about poultry medicine, about diversity, about leadership. And it seemed like the best way to combine all of those would be uh, as a consultant. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really interesting mix because it's poultry health and then DEI. So is there a relationship between the two areas besides a passion for them? Yes and no. In the poultry medicine industry, I've been able to start a, a committee for DEI with the AAAP. I've been able to observe and help with exploring diversity within, within the poultry profession as a whole as well. I have noticed a lot of international components to, to poultry medicine and how it is expanded all throughout the world. But I guess my, my passion for poultry isn't necessarily connected to my passion for DEI. Yeah, they just kind of work with each other. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, just I'm curious, just explore that a little bit more. How do they work together? In terms of accessibility, when you look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're looking at individuals having the same access as other individuals, the same resources as other individuals. And when it comes to food animal health, it is a similar concept trying to provide food that is going to feed the world. So accessible, efficiently well-produced protein that mm-hmm. is going to help provide access to to nutrients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times on the show, we've talked about companion animal medicine and DEI, that relationship, but it's really interesting to hear DEI in terms of the food chain and, and poultry health. So that's really cool. So you're also co-founder and chief executive officer of Possibilities Vet Med. Now, you already had that set up and, and, you know, it's doing great. So why did you feel it was important to bring DEI to the consulting business? 
Possibilities is a, is a nonprofit that focuses on providing a community. So we do mentorship, professional development and resources for individuals from communities that often may not have the same access to veterinary medicine as others. So we're looking at race, ethnicity, um, gender, sexual orientation, individuals with uh, disabilities and chronic conditions, um, individuals from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And so it is more about engaging the, the individuals and and providing them with the resources that they need to join the profession, whether that be as veterinarians, as technicians, as assistants, as hospital managers, and at really at any stage of their career, starting at 18 years and older. Although hopefully in the next year, we'll be expanding that to 13 years and older. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, <laughs> the, the consulting side is really more on the business side for providing organizations and individuals with the knowledge that they need from the the corporate side. So saying, are you looking to establish a DEI program, right? So if it was more on the mentoring side, then possibilities would come in with the inclusive mentorship training. If it is more from an organizational perspective on the corporate side, then a, a consulting organization would be better suited for that task through possibilities. My husband and I, as the CEO and COO, we're not compensated for our efforts and we donate all of our time. We have one full-time employee, two part-time employees, and a lot of volunteers that utilize their time for it. And so we're looking for avenues to grow that labor so that we can achieve some of those goals. But the the consulting side really comes in from more of a for-paid perspective, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, you have to make a living. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and have you had any surprises on the consulting side in terms of either working with a company or organization that has really challenged you and kind of like, oh, there was a lot of work and a lot of great opportunity here in this organization to make change? There are in a lot of organizations, the opportunity for for growth, possibilities, for example, we believe that everyone has something to learn and everyone has something to offer. So there's always room for for growth and for learning is our, our belief. In terms of the consulting side, I would say most organizations have room to grow and is really looking at where are they on their journey and what kind of openness do they have to grow? Because it seems that over the last, you know, two and a half years, diversity has been quote unquote trending. And so is really not about the, the diversity as much as it is about the inclusion and the belonging piece of that. So you can have, you know, individuals from all different backgrounds come in and be a part of your organization. But if they don't feel like they belong and they don't feel included, then it's really not working. Right. 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 <laughs> so, is not about about numbers, right? It's more in terms of the the retention and the climate that your organization has. And what I have found is a lot of organizations want to say that they that they support diversity, and not everybody is willing to put a budget in and to dedicate the time and the resources to to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for our listeners, I'm just curious. You brought up an interesting point about diversity. You know, you can bring someone in the door, but then being able to keep them there because it's a nice, it's a sense of belonging. You know, they feel, you know, part of the community and so forth. So is there, is there advice that you would give to listeners where they're, say, looking at a job opportunity and it looks good, 
But how can you really tell if they're going to feel comfortable there? There truly is meat on the bone. Part of it is talking to the people that are part of the organization, seeing whether they there are people that, that look like you or are like you and whether those individuals feel comfortable enough bringing their voices and their opinions into the room and putting them on the table. That's very difficult to do in the era of like we're doing everything virtually, but ways to do it is notice who is speaking when you're in a group meeting, who feels like they can raise their voice and ask a question and get feedback. And what are the questions that are being asked? Like, if you like for me, for example, I have a lot, of, a lot of diversity, equity and inclusion work on my CV, on my resume and during interviews, um, it can go in a couple of different directions. So I've been asked whether that is going to be a distraction to the job that I'm going to be performing. But I've also been told, oh, this seems like it would be an asset for, for us as a company. And so what is the, the feeling surrounding the activities that you perform outside of your work? Is it being seen as an asset and something that they're going to support that you continue to do as part of that organization? Or is this something that they're okay with you doing on the side as long as it doesn't interfere with what you do in your everyday um, job. And I think that is one of the ways. So talking to the people, feeling how individuals connect with one another in that in that room, in that environment, in that company, but also seeing how are they looking at you? Are they looking at you for that role in a very close manner? Or are they looking at you as a complete person? Right, right. In the October issue of DVM 360, you wrote a column called The Dangers of Performative Allyship. Can you explain what allyship is, and then explain performative allyship, because I think you have to understand, you know, one before you understand the other. Yeah, so allyship is support for a community that you may be close to, but it's not necessarily your own. So for me, um, an Afro-Latina a straight woman married to a straight white male. And so I am an ally, I would like to think, of the LGBTQIA community, but I am not a member of that community. So Allyship would be supporting the individuals in those communities in the way that they would like to be supported, not making the narrative about myself necessarily, but saying, how can I be here for you to advance your community so that you can get equality and belonging, you know, in the workplace and in life. When it comes to performative allyship, it would be me making those statements, but not necessarily furthering with action. Or becoming defensive when somebody said, oh, this is not the way to do it. We should do it this other way instead. So it seems like it's really important then that we have to recognize performative allyship in the DEI space because you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not enough to put out a statement, to share something on Facebook, to to put something on your lawn. Um, it's not enough to have individuals from, say, like the BIPOC community come and present at your conference. You have to actually give individuals the, the support that they need, understanding that individuals from communities that are underrepresented or marginalized or undersourced are going to have either different challenges or the same challenges as other individuals, but more pronounced. They may come from a lower socioeconomic background. They may not have the community support. They may have more loans. And so what we're seeing over the last you know, two, three years has been individuals rising up to talk about DEI, to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a lot of times those individuals are not compensated for their time. So starting with 
compensating people for their time. If you want somebody to come in and speak on a, on a topic in which they are an expert, you wouldn't bring in a, a veterinarian and say, hey, can you do all of these surgeries and do them for free? So if you're going to bring in someone to speak about microaggressions, to speak about bias, to speak about any of these topics, they need to be compensated for their time. If you're going to go out and share a post that somebody in the whatever community you're supporting, say the LGBTQIA community is is sharing. It's not just sharing, right? It's signing, it's donating, it's campaigning, it's learning about the topic. And it's also not making the individuals from, from those communities teach you about the topic, right? Like there are so many resources out there. Grab a book, go to a website, right? Like run ideas by your friends. And if you have friends and you have questions and they are open to, to talking with you on the topic, um, have at it, right? Right. <laughs> but also don't make the individuals from those communities be the ones who, who teach you everything about it. I totally hear you. And as an Afro-Latina veterinarian and business owner specializing in poultry health and DEI, what challenges have you faced in your career? And then how did you overcome them to get to where you are today? For me, it has been coming from um, being raised in the Dominican Republic by, you know, in a family where individuals looked like me within a veterinary community that looked like me and moving to the U.S. to join a veterinary profession that did not necessarily look like me and realizing that the the angry black woman stereotype is the thing and it exists and is there and it can be subtle or it can be outward and I think that has been in my experience the biggest like stereotype that has been impacting me over the last say five years especially since we started working on possibilities this this idea that as a as a woman of color people may not think that way of like of it outwardly right like because she's a black woman I think she's you know angry or unapproachable right but it's this this bias um, where women of color are thought of as less approachable or more judgmental or more likely to get upset or be unresponsive to feedback. And the data has also shown that while these stereotypes are more likely to be correlated with Black women, right? So Black women are thought of in the workplace as being angry more so than other individuals. In addition, when they are thought of as being angry, it's not usually thought that they're angry because the issue at hand is thought to be part of their personality. But the data also shows that Black women don't get angry more so than other people right, in, the right. work, in the workplace. And so it has been my experience numerous times over the last few years where I have been called you know, prickly or unapproachable or unreceptive to feedback. Or It's been a very interesting journey to have having come from a community in which I was part of part of the majority and honestly I'm I would like to think I'm a goof sometimes like I I'm fairly type a like we all are but it's been a very interesting journey to have especially having had submitted talks for for conferences that had the name angry black woman on them and being asked to like change my title because somebody complained that angry black woman should not be part of the title of a talk in a in a scientific forum when there are you know books and movies and all of these things written about them out there right and but you're not those things so that must be so hard to because 
you know, you want to be successful. You want to be assertive. Like we all have goals in life and so forth. And to have that hanging there and be present, like that must be so hard to push through. Oh yeah. But you're doing it. (laughs) My coping strategies include writing an email the way I want it to be written and then going back and adding a smiley face somewhere, making sure that I don't have to do any exclamation marks at the beginning of the email, adding, you know, hope you had a great day and have a great weekend. Hugs Valerie or something like that to make sure that the email doesn't come across as me being too direct because if I wear a, a different ethnicity or a different gender, I may be direct, but as who I am, I am unapproachable. So I'm trying to talk more about it, be more open about it uh, at different conferences because it is a, an issue that is out there. And the more I talk to people about it, the more I realize how many people face it. Yes. So are there any other coping mechanisms you'd like to share um, with us that might help someone who's going through something very similar to you? Yeah. So sometimes if it's, you know, an email or a text message or something like that, I try to take a step back and not reply immediately. Um, my, My husband and I have very different personalities. So I have had him actually read my emails and read my text messages and say, does this seem too direct? Does this seem, um, which seems kind of silly, right? Like utilizing somebody in your network to say, not silly in the sense of you shouldn't ask for somebody's opinion, but if I'm writing a three line text message back about something that is a little bit inflammatory, feeling like you need to be checked, right? To make sure that you don't come across as somebody who is you know, too prickly or too aggressive or too direct or whatever it may be. So that is one of the strategies. I also check in with my network. I have a lot of really strong people within my network that I can call and say, hey, this is happening. Like, what do you think? And I know them and love them and they care for me enough to say when I'm wrong, I'm wrong and tell me when I am right. And so for me, having that support having the individuals around me that help me through that, taking the time when I can take it to to reply to a message and realizing when situations are not going to get better and removing myself from them because my mental health is more important than anything else has also been, for me, a very, very impactful way to to deal with it. And it's not perfect, right? Like I'm I'm taking some drumming classes and I try to exercise and walk my dogs and take the time to take a bath with a glass of wine. So whatever it is that I feel I need at the time is what I'm doing. So let's switch gears for a moment. You're a boarded poultry veterinarian with also a PhD, and I believe your dissertation had to do with um, Newcastle disease. So, and you were studying at University of Georgia at the time, and obviously you're interested in chickens. What's exciting about poultry medicine? Everything is exciting about poultry medicine. <laughs> so, um, I grew up in the in, in the Caribbean. I grew up very aware of zoonotic diseases. I grew up very aware of hunger. My mother is a veterinarian as well, and she does um, or used to do a lot of food animal work. She actually has a PhD in epidemiology. And so I grew up very aware of the danger of transmissible diseases and fleas and ticks and mosquitoes. And so coming to to the U.S. and doing my undergraduate and my graduate degree, I just kept being very 
distracted by everything because I liked everything that I was exposed to. And like, no, I know I have ADHD. I'm diagnosed. I'm on meds, right? And so <laughs> um, back then it just seemed like squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Everything seemed very exciting and very interesting. And I really just decided to just go with it and see where it would let me. I really liked food animal medicine. I liked small animal medicine. I liked endocrinology. I liked virology and microbiology. And so when I was an undergrad at Cornell, I, through contacts from my mother, started working with Dr. Benjamin Lucio Martinez at the vet school. And his work was focused on um, poultry diseases. And so that was the first time I was ever exposed to it. I got to catalog pictures and look at tracheas and cilia. And I thought it was vaguely interesting. And then when Dr. Lucio retired, I moved over to Dr. Dwight Bowman's uh, parasitology laboratory. And I was there for three years. I got to work with roundworms and whipworms. I was working um, with Dr. Mike LeBaire, who is a fantastic scientist who was on sabbatical there at the time. And everybody was just so passionate about science so passionate about science. That lab just makes you want to do science. (laughs) So when I applied to vet school, I still had that mentality, like I'm going to do mixed animal because I want to feed the world, but uh, you know, dogs and cats and whatever else. And then I didn't get in my first round and had to figure out what I, what I wanted to do. And in talking to all of my mentors, they're like, maybe you need to do a little more exposure to like food, animal medicine. Maybe you need to do some more research. Maybe you need to do this, do that. And so I just started applying to jobs everywhere. And I got offers from, you know, a, a poultry facility. I got offers from a diagnostic lab. And then I got this offer from Dr. Gary Whitaker, literally next door to Dr. Bowman's lab. So Dr. Lucia's lab was next door to Bowman's and on the other side was <laughs> Dr. Whitaker. So I literally just went from door to door, basically. And after working with with parasites for for three years, I had been working on developing PCR protocols and all these things that as an undergrad, I had had like a very vague idea of what I was doing. And I was very much guided uh, by Jan Leota, who is the lab manager in, uh, in Dr. Bowman's lab. And so when I started working in this virology lab, I was like, okay, what am I doing now? I'm a lab tech, like, let me help, you know, clean up and organize and help with PCR things. And I started working with some of the graduate students and really learning what it was like to do graduate school, to to investigate, to have a project, to have a, a theory about an outcome and put studies together to answer the question that you had. And I just thought it was amazing. Again, I'm just kind of like wondering about trying to figure out where I fit in the world. And I decided I wanted to apply to PhD programs as well. So my second round of applications, I applied to PhDs, I applied to DVMs. And by the time I decided to do it, it was a little late to apply to DVM PhD programs. But then I was accepted in Georgia at the on the DVM program and on the PhD program. And so I decided to defer the PhD for a year, start with that school come down and I started working part-time in the in the, this laboratory where they work with Newcastle disease and applied for the dual degree program. And so once I got in and I started working with Newcastle, I just absolutely fell in love with poultry medicine. I like the efficiency of the, the poultry industry. I like that the, the goal is to feed people with protein and to to treat birds as humanely as possible to care for your animals and utilize that to care for your people. I think it's a very noble profession in which individuals really care about what they're doing 
And every time that I go out and I, I speak to, to a farmer, every time that I go out, they're always trying to do better. They're always asking, is this problem my fault? Is there something that I could have done better? Is there something that I could have improved? And I love that. Yeah. I really like that as an industry that is always looking to grow and is always looking to do better. I mean, you're so active in several organizations from DEI organizations and so forth and, and, you know, the American Association of Avian Pathologists. What fuels you to take on such active roles? Like, Valerie, why don't you just sit on the sidelines and just be a member and just let someone else do the work? Like, what what fuels you to do the work? The way I see it, somebody has to do it. And I feel like if I, if I sit around, then I'm part of the problem and not part of the solution. And so does that mean that I see other people who don't take on that task that I, that I blame them or that I look at them differently? Not at all. I just personally feel that if I have the, the means to do it, I might as well. And that can be to my own detriment. Um, <laughs> now I know that there is um, this thing, Dr. Molly McAllister from, from Banfield sent me this book, honestly, within like half an hour after meeting me. She was like, I need to mail you this book because this is absolutely you. And it's about being a catalyst. And now I know that, that that's what I am. I like to grow things. I like to improve. I like to create. And that is one of the things that I do think connects my, my passion for poultry medicine and my passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is all about people and about making lives better, about making things easier, about growing and being better together as a community. So how are we going to provide the best source of protein? How are we going to ensure that everybody can bring themselves to the table? And that's what fuels me. I just want to leave the world a better place than I found it. It definitely sounds sounds like it. Now, speaking of you know challenges and being a catalyst and just changing the world, you know, you co-founded Possibilities with your husband. And I was just curious, are there any challenges with working with your husband? Like, do you wind up talking about work all the time? Because I hear this from other veterinarians, you know, who are married to each other or veterinary technicians who are married. It's like, all you do is talk about veterinary medicine and maybe, you know, DEI. Like, are you just always talking about what you guys do? Yes and no. At the beginning, we started, you know, when the pandemic hit, we were both working from home. And so we would be on our respective offices and then come out for lunch and we'd be talking about possibilities and then we'd go back in and then we'd be doing our jobs and come out at the end of the day and walk the dogs and we'd be talking about possibilities and we'd be doing, you know, meetings in the evenings and on weekends and doing all these things. And very, very quickly, we got burned out and it became very apparent that we needed to draw some lines. And so possibilities work does not happen from end of the day on Friday through a lot of Saturday. If there's something that absolutely needs to get done, then it does happen because that is when the time that Seth and I have to do it. But we ask our employees also to to take the week, like our one full-time employee at some point tried to kind of match when they work to when Seth and I worked. And we're like, no, 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 no. This is your day job. We have other day jobs. Like you, you need to take time off. So we've tried to instill within our team that taking time off is a necessity and that you have to be able to disconnect. And as like CEO and CEO, that's not always easy, but I have a, a chronic condition that if I overdo it, 
I don't do great. And so I've had to draw those lines. I have to sleep. I have to eat. I have to exercise. I can't just go, go, go all the time. It is a detriment to myself, both mentally, emotionally, and physically. And so we had to say we need a day of the week where there's no possibilities work. There just isn't. And so it's been challenging because we do try, like, but we keep trying. And a lot of times, I mean, we're out walking the dogs and one of us has an idea and we're like, oh yeah, so what about this thing? And then we're talking about it. And we're like, no, 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 no. This is not our possibilities time. So we try to be conscious about it. It doesn't always happen, but we, we do the best we can. Right. That's all you can do. And I see a drum set behind you. Is that part of your self-care world? Yeah. Yeah. So I have about 20 hobbies or 30 or 40, I don't know. Um, And they kind of rotate through, but I've always wanted to learn how to play the drums. And so I told myself there was this drum set when we first moved to North Carolina from Georgia in 2020 for some some kid that was going to college and it was listed for cheap. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it. And it's going to be great. And then it just sat there for months. (laughs) And so then I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And I started looking at YouTube videos and realized very quickly, that's not the way I wanted to learn to play drums. And so I made a deal with myself that when I pass boards, I would, I would start classes. And so I, I, Passed two out of three sections on my my first try, and then the second time um, I passed the last section of boards, and so I started drumming lessons right after. So I've been doing them every other week for a few months now, and it's been a lot of fun. I also do some like stitching, and I do uh, belly dance. I've been belly dancing since I was fourteen. Cool. Yeah, so I I do a lot of hiking um, when I can, and and we travel as much as we can as well. Well, we're just about out of time. Is there any any other advice you'd like to give us in terms of balancing it all? If you have a lot of interests, how do you rein it all in? Listen to your body. Um, listen to your mind and be authentic to yourself. Ultimately, that's, that's all you can do. I know it sounds a little cliche for me to say, but you can't pour from an empty cup. And I've, I've realized that because I've tried to do it many times. So I I try to be genuine, I try to be authentic and put myself in in a position of being vulnerable. I ask for feedback and I try to have those conversations. I'm I'm not perfect and I don't claim to be, but I do think as a profession we need to do better about allowing individuals to listen to themselves and adapting to an ever-growing profession. I truly believe that once we allow individuals to to bring their authentic selves in a respectful way to others, of course, to the workplace, um, we will do much better in terms of inclusion. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Valerie. It was a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. (laughs) This wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at scrubchat at zoetis.com. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so that we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. I'm Dr. Kim Farina. I'll meet you back here next time. This is Scrub Chat.